When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to DNI Spy, the weekly podcast which uncovers what's really going on in the world of diversity and inclusion. I'm Dr. Julie Humphreys. And I'm Natasha Whitehurst. And in today's episode, we're exploring the conflict between standing out and fitting in. And today we're joined by some Samreen McGregor. Samreen is an executive coach and advisor to senior leaders, teams and organisations, as well as the author of Leader Awakened and partner of the Future Work Forum. Welcome. Thank you. Nice to see you both today. It's great to have you here. We're going to kick straight off, um, if that's okay, Samreen, uh, with a bit of a long question, um, but then we're going to explore it as, as we go through. So how does culture, societal norms, and peer pressure influence a person's inclination to conform or to stand out? A great question, and it's nice to kick off like this. Uh, I think it provides a bit of context, actually. Um, and I want to respond, actually, by speaking to what you said there, Natasha, about that that sort of tension that you describe. Um, and and I, I guess my experience, and this is both personal as well as a practitioner, a practitioner as a coach, but also the consultant and in, in other modalities that I've, I've worked throughout my life, which we'll get into today, is that there's, there's two what I would call contradictory drivers that I think we all share as humans. And it doesn't really matter what our background is. We all have this, these primal drivers. And one of them is the driver to be ourself, to, to actually acknowledge and to to show up being who we actually are. Yeah. And and I think a lot of this is unconscious. So we don't we don't necessarily think about it in the moment, but it's 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 a need. It's a need. It's a primal need to be ourselves. But on the other hand, there is this need to also conform, to belong, to be a part of a social fabric that's beyond just ourselves, And I think that's because we're human, you know, we're, we're, we're social animals. But the actions that we take, the behaviors that we have, both to be ourselves and to belong and conform can sometimes be at odds with one another. So I, th- I think that's just a bit of a frame that that hopefully will will help me to to bring to life the answer to your question. And then I consider the, the four or five different aspects that you bring up there. One is culture, uh, national culture. Um, and I'm just a little bit about myself. And um, I think it it hopefully will be more relatable if I ex- explain a little bit of my own background. So I'm, I was born in Venezuela, in Venezuela. So I call myself half Venezuelan, but I was born in Venezuela and my father's from India. But I was educated in an international school. And I then, when I was 13, we moved to the UK, uh, but was also educated in an American school. So I've had various forces and influences and 
poles throughout the formation of my early years. Uh, so from you know a national perspective, the experience that I've had of national culture is extremely rich and very, very deep. And uh, you know, so if I were to just take two two aspects of that, one aspect would be you know what it feels like to just be different because I was raised with customs, language, just references that might be different to those around me. Uh, and in an international school or American school as a child, that was very pronounced, hugely pronounced. So when I bring that to my adult life and I'm working in an international context, there tends to be far more diversity. But when I reflect on some of the organizations I've worked with or even serviced as a, as a coach, there might be a dominant culture. And those differences really start to rub up against one another. Uh, it can lead to sometimes curiosity and, wow, that's different to what I'm used to. Um, it could lead to quite a lot of loneliness as well because some references might be made that the dominant culture will, will, will share and I'll be left out. Um, and that will then pull or push me into wanting to conform or wanting to state that I'm different. And there's an immersion, an emotional aspect to that as well. So that's the first piece that you talked about, which was national. And I, I'll just pause there because I do have some responses on organizational cultures and peer pressure. But does that make sense? Yeah, I think I think absolutely makes sense. And as as cultures intertwine, then I think those experiences that you've had uh, will become more common. But maybe they're not at the moment. Well, and it's that's a really lovely point. And I would say that throughout my life, it felt, throughout my early life, it felt like there were more dominant cultures that I felt a minority in, okay? Now, there's a couple of layers here, and I'll go into this slowly because it's, it's quite interesting and difficult at the same time for me. And um, as I've grown up, I've noticed definitely there's been more diversity. And therefore, for example, when I moved to London, I remember one conversation I had with an old mentor, actually. And I said, I said, I don't know where I'm from. I don't know who I am. And I was working in a really British organization where there were a lot of shared references. And even though we had global client um, base. And he said, well, maybe you're just a Londoner, Samreen. And I thought, actually, that's quite helpful. But what does that mean? And actually, now that I reflect back on that moment, I, I, I do. I do feel like, you know, coming, although I don't live in London anymore, by the way, I live like you, Julie, somewhere closer to, <laughs> to the countryside. Um, and, and, and that was helpful because there was, there was a sort of a shared, a shared ground. But I would just coming back to the point where I think we're evolving, you know. Now, the, the, the second point I wanted to make is I'm a third culture child. So my mother was Venezuelan or is Venezuelan. My father's Indian. Uh, they both have uh, sort of very, very rooted heritage, but they've traveled a lot. I'm also a third culture parent. So I married a British man and we've got two children. We chose for actually reasons that I needed to school the children in a British education system because I wanted them to have clear heritage. So from a national perspective, I've learned quite a lot about the difficulties of not having that rooted consistency. Having said that, there's a shadow to that because I am a third 
multicultural parent. And sometimes there are times when they have a dominant culture, even within our family, that's different to mine. And no, I'm not living in Venezuela anymore. So it, yeah, it's bittersweet from a cultural perspective. And what about from a peer pressure perspective around that, um, you know, the inclinations of, of someone to to really stand out or go back within themselves and conform? So I, as again, such an interesting question because if, if you know the nat the natural um, call that I get is as a parent to uh, children who are currently going to school and who talk a lot about both my kids, especially my daughter, talk a lot about the ins the out. You know what is the culture of the of the of the peer group, um, the friendship groups, and um, and then I think I, I'll give you a different answer within a corporate organizational culture. But uh, you know it's interesting because I do feel that peer pressure has, um, again, we're social animals. So peer pressure has, um, the ability to, 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 to hook us or to trigger us into, you know, there's, there's, there's a status within the group, isn't there, that, that we're, we're, we're sort of maybe consciously or unconsciously trying to set up, um, in a, in a, in an adolescence case, they want to, they want to fit in and they want to be part of the group or the all group so there is definitely something quite magnified during those years about belonging that that's that's almost a primal need um and and i think it, yeah it can pull at conforming to things that maybe go against the values that we're being raised with i would say something very similar applies in a corporate or an organizational context in that we have cultures and in fact i'll, I'll tell you a personal example of this, having worked within a, a large corporate organization in the last six years, um, as um, someone who was establishing a coaching, a coaching offering for the senior leaders, the organization, um, I mean, at best was described as having a real sort of celebrity leadership culture. So it was all about being happy and, and, and reflect on the period it was during the pandemic happy we could get through this we're all a team better stronger together and there was a real sense of positivity that almost at times felt mismatched what was what with what was going on in reality my personal experience of that having ha having quite sort of sensitive antenna about what culture i fit into when am I most myself? When am I perhaps on the margins? Is that it felt like it was rubbing up against what was authentic for me. And I noticed that with many within the organization, but equally I saw a lot of cohorts of people who felt actually it was, an, it, it was a very supportive way to avoid what was really going on. So culture can, can I, and again, I, I'll come back to this metaphor of a fabric or a connective tissue can help or hinder us being more authentic or less authentic or meeting some of our, just our needs that, that, that represent how we're coping with, you know, the goods or the bads in, in terms of those peaks and troughs of, of our, our, our lives, of our working lives. And so, um, bringing that then back into um to action so we talk on this podcast about kind of the the action of inclusion so how can an individual develop that 
healthy sense of self whilst navigating some of those social expectations what what practically um might they want to be doing gosh um and it's and it and it's a it's 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 such a an interesting bridge because a change in understanding is only as rich and helpful if it leads to a change in behavior and my experience with this kind of content is it can be quite existential. It can be quite messy and really discombobulating. And therefore, translating it into something that's practical requires a, a few things. I think it requires resourcing ourselves. One with making sense of that, yeah, and trying to understand what does it actually mean for me. When I'm feeling like I'm in a meeting and things are happening and I'm not feeling comfortable and I'm not quite sure what to do with it, it's perhaps asking myself the question, what need perhaps is being undermined or compromised by the experience that's happening here? So if, for example, I'm in a meeting and I'm noticing that a few people are dominating the conversation and I'm finding it difficult to share my voice, the answer to that question might be there is a dominant uh, position here that I'm finding either intimidating or I'm not able to interject with. The next step, that's the awareness, right? So being aware, okay, this is happening for me. And, but without sort of being seduced into action straight away, notice, understand the context. Is there a reason why? Is that, is that a legitimate, is there a legitimate reason why that's happening right now? Maybe this isn't the space for me to share my voice. Um, and if it isn't, then to think, well, what can I say to help give myself a voice here or to help others understand that people within this room are potentially not able to participate if I'm using myself as an instrument to collate that data. But it takes courage. So over time, I think there's something about resourcing ourselves um, with opportunities to experiment, you know, so maybe find the safe space to, to interject like that or to intervene or to talk to someone or to help get your peers or, or or someone that you trust to help you think through that context, either after the meeting, if you didn't feel safe enough to interject, um, or to influence through different ways, you know, to, to, to help raise awareness of the conditions necessary for people to participate. I mean, obviously that's a very specific um, uh, example, but I think for me, it's raising awareness not necessarily acting in the moment because sometimes when we act in the moment actually we're not fulfilling our need we're just responding or reacting to something that is undermining our need mm. and in corporate context in organizational contexts how much time do we have to step back and notice before we just react when we're so task focused and we're caught up in the rhythm uh so i guess that the sort of the slightly clearer answer is that you know there's things you can do in the moment to raise awareness and to step back and notice what's needed see if it's possible to interject but then the things that you can do over time to reflect back to talk to someone to resource yourself with the skill and the support to experiment in a way that helps you build that but both of those answers are about you taking responsibility and not assuming that the responsibility lies entirely in the context that's being created by others, although that although that that would be helpful too. 
So when we think about um, an individual or us, if we're going to be very personal about it, um, trying to strike a balance between standing out and fitting in, um, there must be benefits for that, um, both uh, for an organisation but and for the individual, for ourselves as well. Can you talk us through what the benefits are? Because I bet sometimes that you know it's not easy to see those benefits because there's such a conflict. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there is a conflict. I think there's often a conflict and the conflict isn't necessarily bad, but it's just that, you know, something's at odds with one. That's difference, isn't it? That's the beauty of friction and difference. Um, But striking a balance, I mean, look, balance, it's interesting with balance because I find that sometimes we can't, yeah, strike a balance. Sometimes we're sort of, you know, if you were to stand on one foot and, and, and try to hold that in a balanced position, something might throw you off kilter and then you have to try again. So that it's never going to be, you know, there'll be some sort of, you know, dynamic equilibrium that happens. And therefore, in this context, to me, it feels like when our values are really rubbed up against badly and you can feel it, I feel it in my stomach or sometimes I get tightening in my chest when there's something not right here. Um, someone has said something that's either gone against the you know the, the the core or the purpose of of why we're here or said something really unkind about someone then i think there's something here about being being again being discriminating about my own need in the situation and being realistic about the context and asking myself what what is my role here you know what is my what, what in this moment in time what is my role to play um if it's something that's really significant it might be that having the courage to to sit state it and name it is is necessary yeah and you know this you've been unkind this is something that goes against the values of what our team is here to do um and i'm not i'm not prepared to put up with it i think one of the things that i often aspire to do is to be very clear about the judgments that i make uh i mean i'm not perfect okay i'm human but sometimes the judgments that I make can be a reflection of my own judgment rather than the judgment of the, the other parties involved. So therefore, deciphering that is really, really important. Um, so that would be the other side of the, that would be the balance. Yeah. So so stating it when I think there's, uh, no, you know, this is this is a real compromise here to my values, but also perhaps stepping back and saying, well, this isn't the right moment. Maybe I'm making a judgment based on my own assumptions here, and it's not fair. Um, but that takes time, and it takes spaciousness, and it takes taking a breath and recalibrating and regulating myself. These are all skills, and they're sensations that, in this day and age, are quite important to develop a tolerance for. Uh, and and actually, there are forces and pulls that get in the way. And so, so my question would be: Tell us about those those pulls then, that and the challenges that are going to get in the way. So embarrassment um, is is a natural one, and and that's based on a sense of shame and guilt that you're going to upset and hurt someone and. Um, and so, you know, when, when it's that, when you're on this side of it and you want to state it, and you know, challenge. And I think, you know, we often fall in the trap of believing that challenging someone is going to, going to affect our relationship, isn't it? 
But actually, in my experience, people, and this is sounds like a generalization, even the way I'm constructing it, but I'm going to try to break it down. People will engage with challenge if it's done in a way that helps them be the owner of the assumption that needs to be challenged. Them surface the issues that for them require some level of confrontation, not for me to be the owner of the assumption that they're holding. Yeah, it's their stuff. And actually that requires a set of skills which are about helping to provide a space of giving some feedback saying look what I'm hearing you describe is this but depersonalizing it and saying I'm not suggesting that my judgment of you is negative I'm just observing that this is something I'm hearing is that is that what you mean because that enables us to then have a far more constructive conversation about something in front of us rather than with each other a conflict with one another and often I find that what gets in the way is is yeah it is the emotional burden and the surge that comes with responding to a to something because i'm making a judgment and the emotion is pulling me into that into that judgment so that's 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 one thing i think it's it's that being aware of you know what what sort of emotions are pulling at us i think the second i've said it already but i'm going to say it again i think it's being clear about the context within which we explore things you know um we live in a world right now that's heightened there's polycrises surrounding any context you know whether it's i mean look at the beginning of i'm thinking currently as a parent look at you know the few weeks before or the few days rather before the kids went to school there was a threat that and then for some this has been actually manifested in reality that their kids were not going to be going back to school because of, um, a, you know, a, a, a great crisis, right? Um, this has happened after the pandemic. From a work perspective, you know, we want to uh, generate and maintain levels of security and stability, um, financial, uh, you know, social, all sorts. And, and, and so we are living in a heightened state of constant, you know fight flight freeze even mm -hmm. and that means that there are times where we might be having a perfectly normal conversation and something that has nothing to do with the top topic or the context being discussed or having being explored uh triggers a response that's related to uh you know a family situation uh the news about morocco the political situation in uh, Russia and Ukraine, you know, the, the economic crisis and the mortgage, uh, the, the the Bank of England, all of these pressures start to create a sense of fight or flight. And, and in those moments, these start to contaminate how we're even making sense of the conflicts that we are in front of us in the moment. When we start taking that to a cross-cultural context, each of us are responding to it in a very, very different and diverse way. And these poles are con constant at the moment. And so, so thinking then about standing out and fitting in and the kind of the conflict of the two, what are the potential long-term consequences of that, of consistently prioritising one or the other? You know, whether that be standing out or fitting in, both are going to have that, I guess, a long-term impact on an individual. And 
I guess my second part to that question is how can an individual and also an organization mitigate some of those, do you think? So there's about four different aspects to that. I'm going to take them one by one because it's such a rich set of questions. I think the consequences of unaddressed hidden effects from ongoing conflict. And some of this ongoing conflict is like the elephants that are not being put out to hug and to explore and to stroke are absolutely paramount and uh, and, and, and will grow and will continue to generate undercurrents. My experience of organizations is that some of the conversations that are not being had are often the ones that stifle progress, that stifle the quality of relationships, that stifle the well-being of, of, of our people. So the consequences are very, very bleak and they're very clear. And I would say that, you know, I'm just talking about the fight, flight, freeze, flight uh, context or that sort of, you know, perceived threat response that that, that many of us are, are contending with um, unavoidably. Um, I would say that another compounding effect is ongoing conflict that's unsurfaced, unexamined, you know, just not given that TLC, that tender loving care that's required of it um, because conflict can be very healthy and it could lead to creativity, but not when it's an undercurrent that gets in the way. And I would say the second point that you make there about, you know, what does it mean for us, you know, standing out or, or you know, wanting to wanting to really be ourselves versus conforming. And on the one hand, if we're always standing out, it leads to, you know, dominance, aggression, lots of actually unconstructive behaviors and I, I, I'm sure all three of us have had experiences of, of you know, of, of a very dominant narrative starting to take over and actually impacted the morale um, of, of of people within a team or, or across the culture of an organization. Um, people start to, to 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 live in the space of catharsis, which becomes more of a uh, in in a in a sort of transactional analysis perspective where it's parent adult child a parent to parent dynamic where there's a lot of moaning and, and upset but no real progress yeah but on the other hand if you have you know people who are just conforming there's no change there's no curiosity and spark for for shifts and we end up having you know, some of what was written in the 1970s and 1980s of conforming what happens in society when we don't, we, we don't break out of it. So, so it's really important to, to get, you know, some sort of uh, mixture between the two. And as you say, a balance or get the proportion right in those situations where we can call it out and have some healthy conflict, or where we can actually sit back and say, we're going to, we're actually going to agree to disagree and respect one another. And actually just agree that the difference might be holding attention, but we do respect one another. And then in an organizational context, that was the final point you make. I constantly work with individuals and teams and even functional areas across functional teams that, that live with the circumstances and the consequences of unresolved conflict. Um, I often hear 
that sometimes conflict is unresolvable, which I believe, by the way, I agree with that. I think sometimes we have to live with a, a conflict. But yeah, I mean, look at Palestine and Israel. How long has that existed? And I think that conflicts will probably always exist to a certain extent. But the question is how it's, what? where's the compass? How do you navigate that? And in an organizational context is how do you enable people to feel like they can be heard and not shut down because the fabric is stopping any voices from being expressed? Um, and, and if, for example, an individual doesn't belong in that organization because their values are at odds, how does that person see that and make a personal choice to walk away? And, and perhaps that isn't, that is a conflict that's always going to exist and perhaps something needs to fundamentally shift them. So for me, on a really practical level, it's about being very choiceful about when conflict can be healthy and when the hidden effects have to be surfaced and it needs to be addressed and a circumstance changed fundamentally. So thinking then to the future, the world's constantly changing. You know, you've alluded to the um the society in which we're living in and and the kind of um the the yeah, the ongoing change. So how might the dynamics of conflict evolve and what should individuals and organizations be prepared for in the future, do you think? grabbing myself in that question because it's quite a speculative question and um, a part of me is feeling pessimistic about it just because you know we've, we've been exposed to a lot of conflicts which feel uncomfortable um, and unnecessary and unwanted but another part of me is very sort of hopeful that we can become more skillful at working through some of these conflicts um, I don't think frictions and tensions and paradoxes are ever going to go away. And in fact, they are probably one of the biggest, most important skill that we as humans and us as leaders within organizations or within our own, you know, you know, wider contexts need to learn how to navigate really well. Um, but part of that requires us to, to listen more, to, to take a bit of time and just contemplate actually and not constantly be forcing ourselves to come up with answers it might just be that we need to be together and see i know this sounds a bit spiritual but to be together and just to understand what what will shift because some things will shift on their own um and and actually to be less pa less impatient rather more patient um and to 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 yeah to explore a bit more and not be so definitive about what the answers are. I, I think there's been enough political conflicts or even, you know, take different industries and markets. There have been enough conflicts in lots of different contexts that prove to us that they're here to stay, you know, that this is part, this is part of, you know, and that the world isn't getting any smaller, is it? Um, and it's certainly not becoming more homogenous. We're getting more more diverse and therefore being realistic and being hopeful that we can learn to navigate some of these with skill with um a bit of diplomacy but not too much um more curiosity and a prerequisite to that is an acceptance of the discomfort that comes with it i think one of the things i find has helped me to 
to work across lots of different uh, differences has been that need to just embrace the discomfort and stay with it. Not be afraid of it. Don't like it. Not always. Um, but sometimes by being in it, something shifts. You know, being a bit quieter. Well, there's a lot of positivity there. Um, we always say that inclusion's an action here. And um, as Natasha mentioned earlier, we like to give our listeners some some practical advice um, as they sort of wind down and finish listening to each episode. So um, that's our question, our final question to you. Um, what's your top tip or inclusive action that our listeners can really sort of take away with them um, and put into practice? Well, thank you for that question because it really made me think um, and I think inclusion is all about connection. It's about connection with myself and it's about connection with others and the context around me. And I think the tip I would offer is when you talk to another individual and you ask them what they're up to, how they're doing, whatever the context that you're talking about, doesn't really matter, is to listen. Because how many times have you asked someone how they are and then you've not even caught the back end of what they'd said and then you're off to the next bit. Yeah. It really listen, okay? And I know this this sounds like a lot of people might say something similar. But when you listen, is to really listen for how they've made you feel or what's come up for you as an effect of what you've heard. And to share that with them and to connect with them by sharing that, you know, what you've just told me has made me feel like what what the question you've just asked me julie has made me really reflective about how i connect with people in the moment yeah or what it's brought up for me is i don't listen enough and i'm a coach who works with people and i still don't always get it perfectly well right some human too <laughs> So yeah, that is a great top tip and um, one definitely rooted in action. So I love that. And also the fact that it's giving you time to reflect. So that's brilliant. Um, this has been an awesome conversation. Um, thank you for joining us today. Um, we hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. Um, but thanks for, thanks for your time. Uh, thank you. I really, really appreciated it. You can find us on Twitter. Our handles are in the show notes below. And if you've liked what you've heard, please rate us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to get new episodes automatically. Thanks for listening.